Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, as always. It's another True Crime podcast. So, Islanders, well, last week we had the case of Teresa Knorr, who abused her six children and ended up killing two of them. Well, this week I bring you the opposite, where a child takes action to get rid of her parents once and for all. Now, it's a bit involved, so it's going to split into a couple of episodes. Oh, and thank you, Pelly who got back to me on the pronunciation of Chilhuwak, which means going up the river as far as you can. So tonight I will reference the Edmonton Journal, the National Post, York Regional Police interview tapes, the Vancouver Sun, and the book, and highly recommended book if you really want to get some detail, A Daughter's Deadly Deception by Jeremy Grimaldi. Okay, so I'm sure most of you have heard something about the Jennifer Pan case, especially the Canadian Islanders. So yes, we're off to Canada tonight to 238 Helen Avenue, Markham, Unionville, Ontario. Now, Markham has a predominantly Asian population, according to Google, and although not the cheapest area to live, it is cheaper than Toronto. It's regarded as safe and a desirable place to live with great food, Plenty of parks, but apparently getting around is a bit of a hassle. It's regarded so safe that when the news filtered around on the morning of the 9th of November 2010 that there'd been a murderous home invasion, the local community was shocked. There's nothing like that happened here. That type of thing happened elsewhere. The story getting around was a home invasion by three men in Unionville that resulted in the murder of 53-year-old mother of two, Bic Harpan, and the wounding of her 57-year-old husband, Hugh, Hugh Han Pan. He was shot in the face. Now, miraculously, their 24-year-old daughter, Jennifer Pan, was unharmed in the incident. So, let me give you a bit of background on the Pan family. So we got Bic and Han. They were both refugees from Vietnam. They came to Canada separately, and I read somewhere that Han came via Hong Kong as a political refugee. I think nowadays they call them asylum seekers, so don't, don't have a go at me for calling refugees. I'm just reading what I have researched. They met and married, settled in Scarborough, In 1986, they had a daughter, Jennifer, and in 1989, a son, Felix. They both worked at Magna International. Now, that was a car parts manufacturer in Aurora, Ontario. Now, Hunt worked as a tool and die maker while Bic assembled car parts. They worked extremely hard, they saved, and they made sure the kids would have opportunities that they hadn't had. In 2004, they were able to purchase a house in Unionville, Markham, and as I described it before, it was a desirable place to live. They were even able to buy a couple of nice cars for themselves. Now, Han drove a Merc and Bic a Lexus. I'd probably settle for a Mustang. But now, the Pan parents, like I said, they wanted the best for their children, 
and they pushed them hard to achieve their goals. Now, some would say their parents' goals. Now, I guess you could call them a tiger parents, and if we go into a little definition on what that means, if you haven't heard it, well, tiger parenting is a form of strict or demanding parenting. Tiger parents push and pressure their children to attain high levels of academic achievement or success in high-status extracurricular activities such as music or even becoming a doctor, that sort of thing, and they use authoritarian parenting methods. Now, Han Pan, he wanted his daughter Jennifer to become a doctor. His son Felix in 2010 was studying to become an engineer. Now, from an early age, Jennifer was pushed hard by her parents, taking piano lessons, and she would become a highly accomplished figure skater until an injury dashed her 2010 Vancouver Olympic dreams. Now, to get to the 2010 Vancouver Olympic uh, Winter Olympics, you don't just start the year before. She'd been doing this for years and years, building up to this Olympic dream. That was dashed with this injury. Now, she was humble, quiet, and soft-spoken. This is Jennifer. She had a small, tight-knit circle of friends, approved, of course, by her parents. Now, she was expected to get straight A's at her school, the Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School, and she would be closely watched whenever she attended extracurricular activities. Her parents would drop her off and pick her up from school. She wasn't allowed to date or go to any school dances, and she was forbidden to attend any parties just in case it affected her schooling. Now, at the start, she did get those straight A's, but as years went on, she slipped behind in her grades. So instead of disappointing her parents and probably suffering their tiger wrath, she started to forge school report cards to show that she had the required A grades. Now, this sort of led her on a slippery slope of lies that would ultimately end in tragedy. Now, Jennifer was in the school band, and it's here that she would meet Daniel Wong. Now, he was about a year older than her, and they became friends. Now, he was mixed Filipino-Chinese. On a music excursion to Europe in 2003, Jennifer suffered an asthma attack from all the smokers in the auditorium where they were playing. Now, I know Europe. Oh, my God, they do like to smoke, so I can understand She rushed out to get air and Daniel was there to help her. I guess this is the moment she fell in love with him and they soon became a couple. They had to keep their relationship very secretive as Mr and Mrs Pan would not approve of Jennifer having a boyfriend. In fact, they did meet him and told her not to associate with him as he was half Filipino. Now, Jennifer was still excelling in music. She was winning many awards, but her other subjects suffered. She was even able to make money on the side teaching piano. Now, one of the subjects she failed in was her calculus class. And this meant that she lost her early admission to Ryerson University. This is at the end of year 12. And she didn't graduate from high school. But that didn't stop Jennifer. She lied to her parents about graduating and that she was, in fact, going to Ryerson Uni. She told her parents that her plan was to do two years of science then transfer over to the University of Toronto's pharmacology program. Although Han wanted Jennifer to be a doctor, he knew she probably couldn't handle that, but a pharmacist was just as prestigious. Now, Jennifer had to portray the life of a uni student. 
She brought the usual school supplies and collected used biology and physics textbooks. She told her parents she had an OSAP, or Ontario Student Assistance Program, loan and had won a $3,000 scholarship. By showing them forged documents again, it all looked legit. So, for two years, Jennifer would get ready as if she was actually attending uni, get on public transport and head downtown. But in reality, she would hang out at the library reading scientific journals and take notes in her textbooks to make it look to her parents that all was fine. She also spent time in cafes, working at a couple of pizza places. She taught piano lessons and would go to visit Daniel at York Uni, where he studied. (laughs) What a lie she's building up here. Just thinking, just thinking that for two years, she'd not only not graduated from high school, that she wasn't going to uni either. Now, this is two years. I'd be... I'd be so frustrated and I think my frustrations probably hurt anxieties that are going to start to build. Anyway, let's go on. And just on a side note here, Daniel, in his final year of high school, he transferred from Mary Ward to Cardinal Carter Academy. That's an art school in North York. Now, he'd also been done for having eight ounces of pot in his car. (laughs) That's a lot of pot, even for personal use or maybe it's not but let's let's keep going now jennifer then told her parents she had been accepted into the university of toronto to study pharmacology so that's how her plan was supposed to be two years at ryerson two years into toronto now her parents were really really happy about this and they probably let her have a little bit of freedom a little bit more by agreeing for her to stay at her friend's place topaz Now, this was because the journey was almost an hour and a half each way each day. But instead of staying with Topaz, she actually shacked up with Daniel at his parents' place. Now, she told Daniel's parents that it was fine by her parents that she was able to stay there. Now, as you can see, these lies are just compounding. They're just compounding from Jennifer. Well, I'd say maybe in Canada you call it snowballing because there's so much fucking snow there. Anyway, I'm stressed just thinking about the fact she's putting on this charade for years and how much stress this must have caused her. I mean, she isn't just dropping a couple of subjects. She isn't even enrolled and she hasn't even graduated high school. Anyway, they got to the stage where Jennifer should have been graduating from uni. So there were more lies and deception. Her parents were asking her about the graduation ceremony and, of course, they wanted to see her grades. I mean, they wanted to see her graduate for sure, being the photos and all that. But Jennifer told her parents that a ticket to the, gradu- the tickets to the graduation were limited to one parent per graduate as there were so many people graduating and that, that as she knew both of them couldn't attend, and she didn't want to choose which one could attend, she gave her ticket away to a friend so that both her friend's parents could attend. I mean, wow. She even got Daniel to search online and they were able to buy a fake degree for 500 bucks. Now, after graduation day, Han asked Jennifer for photos and she quickly deflected his request by saying her friend had taken all the photos 
and she was currently on a plane back to Hong Kong. This girl is fast out of the block with these lies. Now, Jennifer then sent out some resumes with her fake degree, but she didn't get any callbacks. Okay, so now Jennifer told her parents she was volunteering at Sick Kids while job hunting. Now, Sick Kids is basically the corporate name for the Hospital for Sick Children at Toronto. Now, funny enough, this volunteer job, it just happened to be Friday nights and on the weekends. <laughs> I mean, funny that when most young people want to go out and probably not attending class or working a full-time job, nine to fiver. Now, that's just like Daniel wasn't. Now, Han and Bick started to get a little suspicious with this. Jennifer had no uniform and it didn't, and she didn't seem to have this ID card that you'd probably have to have to get in there. So one day Han told Jennifer that he'd drive her to work. In fact, he insisted he'd drive her and for Bick to come as well. When they arrived at the hospital, Jennifer was shitting bricks and she jumped out the car as fast as she could. She ran inside the emergency department with her mother not far behind. She was able to find a place to hide and she stayed there for a few hours. Still, her parents were sus. Bick called Topaz, where Jennifer was supposed to be staying. Now, she called her early in the morning, and Topaz answered, still a bit sleepy or groggy, you know what I mean, in the morning, and totally forgot that she was supposed to cover for Jennifer. And so when Bick asked her where she was, Topaz told her she didn't know. Now, Bick instantly called Jennifer on a mobile and demanded she come home instantly. Now, when Jennifer did arrive home, Han was pissed off. The previous four years' worth of lies started to come crashing down. Now, there was no, as we know, there's no Rice and Uni. There's no Uni of Toronto. Now, she hadn't even graduated high school. Instead, she'd just been shacked up with Daniel Wong and her, her whole life was a lie. Now, Jennifer decided not to tell her parents the whole truth. Instead... She told them she was staying with Daniel and the sick kid's job was fake. But she neglected to tell them she hadn't finished high school or attended Ryerson University. And she told them she was studying at the University of Toronto, but via correspondence. That way, she wasn't attending classes. Now, fuck, imagine if the whole story had come out at once right then. They They were pissed off. They wouldn't have been happy to hear what they told her, what what she told them, but to tell them the whole thing, that would have freaked them out for sure. Would have broken Han's brain. Anyway, Han wanted to throw her out of the house, but Bick calmed, down, calmed him down just a little bit. Now, Han wanted Jennifer to get her life back on track. He told her that she had two choices, go back to school and stop seeing Daniel, or get out and go live with him and never come back again. He topped this off with telling her that if she chose Daniel over the family, she could only come back to the house when he was dead. Now, Jennifer chose to come back home and finish off the schooling and just generally get her life back on track. Maybe not her track, maybe her father's track. With this, though, came certain strict conditions. To start with, she had a complete grounding for two weeks. She couldn't go out. She couldn't have a mobile phone, but eventually she would be permitted to go out to do her piano lessons 
and she would be driven there and back by either Bick or Han, and she definitely couldn't see Daniel. So Jennifer, at this stage, she's in her very early 20s, locked down at home, no way to communicate via phone, limited access via the family computer in the lounge room, and is constantly monitored by her parents. Now, her mum did let up a bit and let her check messages on her phone occasionally, but this was kept secret from Han. Now, treated like a 12-year-old rather than, say, a 22-year-old, she's constantly monitored, but she must have felt some relief from the burden of keeping up the lie or the double life she had been living previously. Still, she was separated from the love of her life, Daniel Wong. She was able to get a few messages out to him and call him occasionally when her mum gave her access to her phone for a few minutes at a time just to check if any job applications she had sent had been replied to. But she was still pretty much locked up and she's pretty much still lying to her parents. Now this will be a theme throughout Jennifer's saga. She was so restricted in what her parents would let her do, the only way out other than leaving home and leaving the family unit was to cover up her tracks with half-truths or white lies and the outright bullshitting of her parents. It just became second nature to her. Now, as time went on, Jennifer was allowed a few freedoms, like using her mobile and laptop while in the presence of her parents, and she was even allowed to drive her mum's car to piano lessons, but the mileage would be checked before and after. But it didn't take long for her to screw everything up again, One night, Daniel had called her saying he needed her badly, and so Jennifer called one of his friends to come pick her up. Now, Jennifer snuck out of the house in the middle of the night. I'm sure a few of us have done that. She did the folding of blankets thing where it looks like there is someone under the sheets, but no one's really there at all. The problem is the Bic had left her wallet in Jennifer's room the day before, and so she went into her room early in the morning to go get it. Now, it wasn't just the quick look in the room to see if she was there. You'd probably see this lump under the blankets. She actually had to have a get, go right in there to have a look at her, uh, look for her wallet. And then she noticed that the bedding didn't look quite right. So, yep, Jennifer was busted again. The next lie and fake job to try to get time out of the house was her fake pharmacy job at Walmart. She constantly told everyone about the job, friends, family, everyone. She was building up this false narrative just to get a bit of time with Daniel. Now, Harm was suspicious again. Good on you, <laughs> Jennifer had no uniform, no swipe card, and as before with the six ki- sick kids job, he pressed her for proof that she actually worked there. Now, he asked her for a pay slip, which he said was in her locker at work, and the next day she showed him one that she'd found on the internet and forged her details into it. She is a good one, isn't she? Still, he demanded he'd drive her to work the next day, and luckily for Jennifer, someone was coming out of the employee entrance as she slipped in. Now, she hid in there for a while until her father left, and then she went to the library. But when she got home, Han demanded she'd log into her bank account to show him the deposit of her wages. He is crafty. She then admitted that the hours were faked, but took the opportunity while her father was pissed off with her to admit that her enrolment at the University of Toronto 
it was all bullshit as well. I suppose he was that fucking angry that he couldn't get any more angry. So she slipped this other thing in that, yeah, two years at University of Toronto was bullshit as well to go with everything else. Han, from that moment on, would never trust Jennifer again. Jennifer was put into full lockdown again, this time permanently, and she was made to email Daniel in front of him to tell him the relationship was over and to stay away. Now, Jennifer told her father she owed him $3,000, and Han wrote her a cheque immediately, hoping this would bring some finality to her relationship with Daniel. So, this constant surveillance of her every move, it really got to Jennifer. Friends and even her piano teacher told her she should consider moving out. But Jennifer told them that her family was the most important thing, and she just couldn't think of it. Now, her piano teacher, he actually said that he thought it wasn't the family face thing that stopped her from moving out. It was more that she didn't want to lose the comforts of home, and that she doubted being able to make it by herself. So, who knows? Okay, I think we've got a, we've got the drift on the life and times of Jennifer Pan at this point. So what comes next is probably the straw that breaks the camel's back. Daniel, at age 24, and having been in a relationship for Jennifer for around seven years, well, he finally makes the break. He stops answering most of her calls and doesn't reply to most of her messages. He's trying to move on and he finds a new girlfriend, Christine. The light at the end of the very long tunnel for Jennifer turns out to be the light of an incoming train and this smashes her morale. Jennifer tried to be a nuisance to both Daniel and his new girlfriend, trying desperately to get them to to break up or split up. Again, to try and to overcome being dumped and ignored, she contacts Daniel and told him that she'd answered a knock at the door and five Asian guys had broken their way in and gang-raped her. She told them that there was a mention to leave his new girlfriend alone. Now, obviously, trying to make out the new girlfriend maybe had ordered this gang-rape, and Jennifer hoped to get Daniel to dump his new love and probably take her back. At the very least, she was wanting attention. She also told him that she'd received a bullet in the mail, again referencing that she leads the new girlfriend alone. Of course, both these stories were just lies. Now, that's how Jennifer operated. Lie to get what she wanted or needed. She'd been doing it for years. Okay, so let's move on to the reason why we're talking all about this. On the 9th of the 8th of November, around 10pm, there's a frantic 911 call. Jennifer, with her hands bound behind her back and arm bound to a banister at the top of the stairs, is screaming down the phone to the operator. Help me, please. I need help. I don't know where my parents are. Some people just broke into our house and just stole all our money. I just heard shots. Pops. I'm tied upstairs with my hands behind my back. I have my cell phone in my pocket. And please come help. Okay, so that's what Jennifer said. I haven't got a clean cut of the 911 call off the internet so I haven't I'm not going to play that here but that's the drift of it she then goes on to describe these attackers being black males she described that what they were wearing but also said they turned off all the lights so she didn't really see them all that well she told them they'd taken her parents downstairs and then she heard the pops 
Then all of a sudden, in the background of the call, there's this blood-curdling scream. Jennifer's father had raced up from the basement and out the front door, screaming in pursuit of the attackers. So Jennifer calls out to her father, but he doesn't stop to check on her. Soon, police arrive and clear the house and cut Jennifer free. Han Pan has collapsed outside and is rushed to hospital with gunshot wounds to his face. Now, sadly, Big Pan is found dead in the basement with a gunshot wound to the back of her head. Now, actually, Jennifer was able to see her father is being placed in the ambulance and she said to him, Daddy, are you okay? Now, Jennifer is physically unharmed and is taken to hospital as well, as just as a precaution and given some sedatives. Now, later at around midnight, she would be taken downtown for an interview by police. Now, Han Pan initially was rushed to Markham Stoofville Hospital. I'm sure I'm going to get... How do you pronounce Stoofville Hospital? But then he was airlifted to the Central Toronto Trauma Centre. Now, if you want to watch all three interviews that Jennifer undergoes over the course of this investigation, they are in full on YouTube and they together span nine hours. Now, I've watched them and gone back over them twice in the research for this case. Now, if you think Prince Andrew interviews are a train wreck, then you really need to watch these. Because once you know the complete story, it's like some sort of twisted reality show watching these interviews unfold. So maybe view it as a nine-hour miniseries rather than three long interviews. Anyway, in the initial interview, police need some information on the home invaders so they can start their investigation and try to find them. They want to get them off the street first. So Jennifer tells them that her mother had come home at around 9pm from her weekly dance lessons and was downstairs. Her brother was away studying, her father was in his bedroom and was sleeping. She was upstairs in her own bedroom. Now the next thing she heard was her mother calling out frantically for Han to come downstairs. She heard her father go downstairs and then heard other footsteps coming back up. She was on a call to a friend at the time and told them she would call them back and she hung up. Next, she opened her door a little to see what was going on and was faced by a black man with dreadlocks pointing a gun at her. He told her to give him money and she gave him 2000 that she'd been saving from piano lessons. He then took her downstairs where she could see both her parents on the couch with two of the other men. Her mother is sitting with her feet still in the water bath that she used to soothe her feet after dancing. At least one had a revolver pointed at them. They were asking for money. Jennifer was then tied up with shoelaces. She was taken back upstairs to the entry of her father's bedroom at gunpoint while a second guy ransacked the room. Now, she says that they find about $1,100 US that was left over from a holiday. She described the second guy as being black and wore a bandana to hide his face and the third guy was black with a Caribbean accent. Next, she was bound to the banister upstairs by her arm with another shoelace while she heard her parents being taken down into the basement. One guy kept saying, this is taking too long, hurry up. Then Jennifer says she heard pops, like gunshots, maybe three or four. Then the intruders left the house. She was able to get to her cell phone, which was in her back pocket, and then she called 911. 
During the call, she then heard her father screaming as he ran out of the house. The next thing she knows, police arrived and cut her free. Now, the police, they'll take her phone and copy it. She seems quite worried about what they might find. She also seems worried when the police tell her how many people they're going to interview, like brothers and friends and relatives. So, at first, the police want descriptions of these three intruders so they can get them off the street. As per Jennifer's description, they tell media that they're looking for three males. Number one, male, black, 28 to 33 years old, 5 feet 7 with medium build. Number two, male, black, 31 years old, 5 feet 8 inches tall, thin build, wearing a dark hoodie and bandana over his face. Number three, male, thin build with a Caribbean accent. Now, do I say Caribbean or Caribbean? I don't know. Send me an email. But it isn't long before police start to feel that things don't add up with Jennifer's story. First thing they thought was weird was when Han raced out of the house to try to either track down the crims or get help from a neighbor, whatever he's doing, wouldn't he first have gone to check to see if his daughter was okay? Also, why keep a witness alive if they're quite prepared to kill two other people? And why wasn't she at least blindfolded? Now, also, home invasions are very rare, and how did the intruders know that they wouldn't be faced by someone with a gun ready to protect themselves? They were also a bit sceptical on how Jennifer, with her hands tied behind her back and one arm tied to the banister, was able to get the phone out of her pocket and be able to call 911. Now, one of the detectives, a detective cook, he thought she was full of shit from the start. And the home invasion and murder was an inside jobs for the basically the reasons I just went through. But the department is divided into two camps. Jennifer is either the victim or the perpetrator. Now, Daniel Wong, he is brought in to interview as well. Now, he's really cool and calm. He even falls asleep in the interview room when the investigators aren't there. Now, a couple of days later, on November 10, Jennifer is interviewed a second time. They've clearly had time to check out at least some of Jennifer's story and they conduct the interview with a completely different tone. Like, they know she's already lying. And don't forget, she's already given them her phone, which they could have got quite a bit of info off, maybe. Now, when you see this, if you do watch it on YouTube, she's really nervous. She's just wringing her hands nonstop. Now, the detective tells her to start like it's fresh told not to be nervous, and the truth is the best way to overcome anxiety. And this interview will go for four hours. Now, Jennifer is told there are certain penalties for lying or misleading police to investigate something that's not real. As she was cautioned like this in the first interview, but this time, they seem very focused on this. Now, Jennifer is there on her own. She doesn't have a lawyer, which I guess someone like Jeffrey Epstein, he would make sure, regardless of whatever, he's taking a lawyer. Now, Jennifer tells the investigator that she's worried she would contradict what she said in the first interview. Now, reality is, if she tells the truth, most of what she said the previous interview will pretty much be the same. There might be a few little extra details or... Things on the timeline slightly different, but generally it's going to be pretty much the same. Now, they ask if she had more than one phone, and this is where things start to really fall apart. 
She then tells him she has two SIM cards. Now, she didn't mention this before. And also, when she's talking about that 1100 US dollars that was mentioned stolen, that suddenly turns to $200. Now, Jennifer is asked to demonstrate how she got her phone out of her back pocket to call while being bound. Now, she does do this. She doesn't do it sitting on the floor. She doesn't do it tied up and tied to a banister. She's just standing there. But by the look of it, it's quite unconvincing. But not to say it's not possible. The investigator, he brings up the fact that there's a safe that's fairly visible in the father's bedroom and ask her if they saw it or if she was asked the combination to it if they did see it. Now, she's very vague at this point and says she doesn't know the combination and that they must have overlooked it. Now, what they do next is they they do go backwards in the timeline. It's called the reverse chronological technique, and this starts to fuck her up a bit. She seems nervous but confident when recalling early event, earlier events of the day But when it comes to recalling the home invasion, she's very, very slow to answer. I mean, it really looks like she's remembering each piece of lie to put with each piece of truth or what actually happened. And her answers, they just do not flow at all. Now, if you actually experience something, it would be like a chronological timeline of events in your mind, like like watching a movie. If you make shit up and scatter it amongst what really happens, it's extremely difficult to remember where you lied and extremely difficult to recall when asked to think about it in a reverse chronological order. You've got to use so much more brain power and that's why it takes so much longer to answer. Now, Danny Wong is mentioned and she is quizzed over her relationship with him. They also discuss how Jennifer lied about attending university and how she kept it from her parents for so long. They also talk about how in 2007-8, Jennifer was busted by her parents when they came to pick her up at the mall and saw Daniel drop her off. Now, this would bring upon Jennifer one of the many ultimatums that her parents would give her when she got busted for this. Now, in this interview... A second phone is revealed that was given to her by Daniel and that she also has this second SIM card. She's asked about any threats she may have received in recent times and Jennifer talks about threats from Daniel's new girlfriend, Christine. But she didn't bring this up before in the first interview, which puzzles the investigator. She then talks about the fake rape claim and the bullet in the mail that she told to Daniel and how she did this only to get attention. She told the cops, oh, I didn't report it because I knew it didn't happen. That's wrong. But she only made this up to get Daniel's attention. So she's lying to get Daniel's attention. Now, (laughs) she's quite happy to dump Christine, Daniel's girlfriend, into it with regards to drugs and dealing. She seems quite happy to divert the focus from herself for a few minutes onto others, especially when it comes to Christine. You see, the cops have some theory that this home invasion came about because of Jennifer's links to Daniel and his drug dealing and that maybe the Pan family also had some links to drug dealing. Now, this wasn't the case at all, but they were wondering why this family had been targeted 
out of any other family. Now, Jennifer is left alone for quite a while in the interview and she's pacing up and down and she's looking extremely nervous. And on resumption of the interview, they bring up the safe in Han's room again. Now, why wasn't it discovered when the whole room had been ransacked and it was in plain view? They also discuss this BlackBerry phone, this second phone. Now, also, her and Daniel's recent conversations are brought up because she hasn't mentioned much at all in this first interview. Now, the BlackBerry phone, that's found to be her main phone rather than the other phone she'd previously given to police on the night of the invasion. And as they get into this a bit more, it's found there are now three phones. There's an iPhone. There's the flip phone she had on. She gave to the coppers on the first interview, she said was her main phone. And there's this BlackBerry. Now, this looks really sus. Like Jennifer had something to hide that would be on not only the second SIM card maybe, but something that might be found on the other two phones. Now, if anyone remembers back in the day, around 2010, that Android and iPhone iPhones, they were re- relatively new, and that BlackBerry phones were the norm, especially for business users, because they were very secure. iPhones and Android phones, you could break into them, they weren't secure at all. And I think by default, if not they had to be, these BlackBerry phones were encrypted. And if you didn't have the code to get in, the PIN code or whatever, you couldn't get anything off them. You couldn't log into them. You only had the option at that point to wipe the phone. Now, these were the go-to phones, other than burner phones, of course, for criminals, to keep their communication safe from authorities. Now, probably a good phone to use when planning a murder or two. Now, Jennifer is told of the surveillance cameras that they were looking at the footage from across the road from her place. Now, that must have got her to sphinct to clench a little bit. She was also asked how these guys got into the house. Now, Jennifer said that whenever anyone came to the house, anyone in the family, they'd creep up quietly towards the door so they could see who it was. And if they didn't want to answer the door, they would just quietly retreat. So... <laughs> I've done that many times back in the day on a Sunday morning, bit hungover, and we've got the Joeys banging at the door. Anyway, now, one thing I picked up from this was that Jennifer told police when she was originally marched downstairs by the number one guy, she saw her mum sitting on the lounge soaking her feet in that warm water bucket thing that she used to soothe her feet after dancing. Now, if there was a knock on the door... Bic, like she said, the whole family does it, she would have crept up to see who was there before deciding to open the door. Now, if she did this, a knock at the door, she creeps up there like she always did, why did she answer to people she didn't know and say she did answer and they forced their way in? Why is she sitting back with her feet in the water When Jennifer is marched downstairs, it seems a little bit weird that she goes and sits in the exact same spot, puts her feet back in the water. So, the door was probably unlocked, even though the front door would always be checked to be locked early in the afternoon or early night. 
A little detail can say so much, especially when planning something like this. So Bick probably didn't have time to move before the invaders. They just opened the door, got inside and put a gun on them. Now, the interview is pretty tense at this stage in her lies to Daniel, her lies to her parents. These are brought up in the context of maybe she's lying now. I mean, why wouldn't she be lying now? Now, Jennifer is extremely nervous now. She's really just wringing her hands frantically. Her resentment for being locked up by her parents is brought up, and she's asked if she had actually organised the hit. Now, she denies being involved, and soon the interview is stopped. Now, as Jennifer leaves the building, she's informed that her 102-year-old grandfather, father of Big Pan, had just passed away. He had been sick. And that was just two days after his daughter, Big Pan, had been murdered. Now, Han Pan is still in a coma at this stage, but police are ready to interview him as soon as possible. Okay, like I said, I didn't realise how much this would go on for, and we're probably just halfway. So I'll make this a two-part episode, and I'm sorry. There was just so much background to go into to understand Jennifer's mindset at the time, and also with her interviews, all nine hours of them. They have so much detail that I had to try the best I could to sort of condense it for you. Now, I've actually, like I said, I've watched these completely through twice now. Just a tip, the second time I did have to speed it up just to get through the nine hours of it. So next week, Pan comes out of his coma and gives his version of events. Jennifer is pulled in for a third interview. Thousands upon thousands of text messages and calls are cross-referenced from multiple people. There are arrests and trials and ultimately some justice will fall upon the main instigators of such a shocking crime. Okay, well, there you go. Absolutely crazy this case is. And uh, like I said, we'll finish this one off next week, but we'll finish this one off now. Patreon, thanks to all my past and present and new patrons. Your financial support does make a difference as True Crime Island is commercial free for all. So there's no annoying ads for undies or food or delivery shit and all. And all my content is available for everyone no matter if you can afford to donate or not. So thank you all so much. It's very appreciated. Now, if you want to help out the island, you can go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. Now, if anyone, like I said last week, has missed an email for a Patreon reward, please get in touch so I can sort you out. And that's the upper two tiers after three months. And of course, I'll be sending out emails this week and the $5 sticker things as well. Now, if you don't like the monthly thing, you can also donate to PayPal. PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com or paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Now, don't forget, support yourself before you support the island. I know times are tough at the moment for all of us. Now, I have Merchant Threadless and Redbubble now. I finally have updated my website, which is truecrimeisland.com. Now, there's a contact and merch link. Click on that. That's for Threadless Redbubble. And also, I'll talk about in a sec, the Bonfire promo link. Now, if you have any problems with any of this merch, not only let them know, but let me know as well, as they will sort out any problems you have. 
Now, this bonfire thing, I'll be running a promo for a limited edition hot pink logo shirts with 2020 on it. What a, what a year. So instead of the aqua blue, it's hot pink. This will run for three weeks until the 28th of July. So it's actually on now. And you can order within that time frame. Now, after that time frame's finished, they get all the orders together, they produce them, and then ship them. Now, thanks for all of those who've already ordered one. In fact, I've ordered one for myself as well. There are a few styles, long and short sleeves, and several colours. I got the short black, just like coffee. Now, there's also link, uh, links on my Facebook and Twitter for this. Now, if you do find it hard to get the link, you want to have a look at least or buy one or whatever, drop me an email and I will send it through. My email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. Now, you can also support the show. This is a free way of doing it, rating and reviewing, also by sharing it with your friends and family. Now, please feel free to check out my YouTube channel and subscribe. There will be a giveaway at 1,000 subs. We're getting quite close to that. So it's a little bit more motivation to have a look. And thanks to all those who have subbed already. Please feel free to comment there, subscribe, and to get notifications, hit the little bell. I've also added a link for this on my website. I did a bit of website stuff today. If you want to contact me, the best, honestly, the best way is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. It is my email. All the other ways are all right. But if I need to get reference something, like you've asked me to look into a case or something, it's quite difficult for me to go back and search if required. When it's an email, I can just put a little star on there and search the star ones. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. As I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, bakalunga. Bye.